that on. Tie that on to yourself somewhere. To myself. This is a lot. You want to put that in your pocket? In my pocket? Well, friends, do the passage. You do the passage. Beautiful. So our passage today is Luke 4. Um, I'll read it and then we'll pray. This somewhere. So, oh, it's right there. So I can turn to it. I'll just read it from here. It's easier. <laughs> and Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, if you are the son of God, command the stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, it is written, man should not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, to you, I will give all this authority and their glory for it has been delivered to me and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, it is written. You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, He will command angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him, until an opportune time. Um, so let us pray. Um, so Father, thank you for this text that you have given us. Um, thank you that we can learn something about you and the salvation that you have accomplished um, through your son, Jesus, the second Adam. Um, so Father, would you stir our hearts and would you awaken our affections for Jesus whom has um, borne our penalty, who has brought forth um, the obedience that we could not do and has taken the curse that we um, could not bear. Um, so Father, thank you for your son, um, and thank you for this passage. May it, um, may you use it um, to glorify your son and to build up your saints. In Christ's name, amen. Um, so tonight, of course, we are continuing um, our series, Conversations with Jesus. Um, and in this series, we are looking through conversations that Jesus has um, with individuals in the Gospels. But this particular conversation is unlike any other. Um, he's not having a conversation with, you know, a random individual. He's having a conversation with the devil himself. Um, which makes the, difficult, makes the passage sort of difficult to um, interpret in a way. Because unlike the other stories, Luke 7, John 3, there was a, we were able to see ourselves as an individual in the story. We were able to sympathize or put ourselves in the same foot, in the same sort of um, scene as the woman in the city, Right? We were able to sympathize. We were able to feel ourselves as that person. Nicodemus. We were able to say, you know, I'm Nicodemus. Um, I don't understand how I can be born again. Um, and Jesus says, gives the answer. So we're able to sympathize and be Nicodemus. But in this passage, we're not Jesus, nor are we Satan. So this makes it extremely difficult to interpret. Because usually this, this passage is interpreted in such a way where it's saying, you know, it's Christ is our example in which we fight temptation. So we memorize three verses from Deuteronomy, and then through that we can fight the temptation of Satan. Has anybody heard that translation or story of, or that general interpretation of the story? 
Okay, well, I'm going to argue that that is not the main point of the text. <laughs> um, so I will not be using, you know, encouraging you guys. You know, go, go quote some scripture. Go read some scripture. Even that's a good thing. Um, that's not the main point that I will be telling you guys from this text that I will hope to show you. Um, I simply want to um, inflame your hearts um, and stir your affections for Jesus. Um, because of the great salvation that he's accomplished, that he's showing us as he begins the ministry that he will accomplish for us. And the goal of that ministry is our salvation, our redemption, the reversal of the curse brought about by the first Adam. Um, so the main point of this passage is that Jesus, our substitute, the second Adam, has succeeded where the first Adam failed. Um, so Luke highlights this, and so does the other gospel writers, in order to show us that the ministry of Jesus, or the ministry of Christ, is to bring peace to the chaos that Adam has started. Um, or in the words of Paul, he articulates it very clearly in Romans 5, verse 18 through 19. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. So in order for Christ to begin his, his ministry here on earth after his baptism and after the glorious proclamation that you are the Son of God in whom I am well pleased, after this proclamation, the ministry of Jesus begins where the story of Adam ended. Face to face with the devil himself. Um, so although Adam failed and was crushed under the weight of the tempter, Jesus, the second Adam, will fulfill the prophecy in Genesis 3.15. I will put enmity between you and the woman, her offspring and your offspring. You will bruise his heel, but he, in fact, will crush your head. Um, so that's where we're going with this passage. The purpose of that introduction, I guess, you could say to get your minds sort of thinking about the parallels um, that we see in the failure of Adam in the victory of Christ. So, this is an exciting time. Um, I, I love this passage because it instantly made me think of Adam. We're, we're all, we should, hopefully, we're, we're, we're mostly familiar with Adam. Um, how Adam was in the garden and in verse 3 of Genesis, um, in verse 1 of Genesis 3, it says, and the serpent was more craftier than all the animals the Lord God had made. Um, and then he proceeds to tempt Eve and then tempt Adam and then they fall. But I want to make sure you see the parallel between Jesus, the second Adam, and how much more his temptation or how greater his temptation was than Adam. So Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness. Parallel that with Genesis 3, where the serpent, the serpent was the one to approach Adam. Our second Adam has a mission. He's not being passive in his pursuit of the serpent. He is going to the serpent to conquer him. Unlike Adam, who was passively sitting by the tree, waiting for Eve to be tempted and then take the fruit. Adam was in the garden. 
with a companion. Jesus was in a barren wilderness. In the garden, there was plenteous of fruits, vegetables that he could fill his stomach with, but Jesus didn't have food for 40 days. Adam was tempted once and failed. Christ was tempted three times and was triumphant. Um, so and with this temptation um, and the failure of Adam um, would come a whole humanity born into sin. Conceived in iniquity under God's wrath, completely guilty and unable to save themselves. But this is where the story comes in. Um, but God sent forth his son. Born under the law. Born of a woman. To redeem those who are under the law and under its curse. Um, so, I want to slowly walk you through um, what I would say the importance of the temptations are. Because it's not really specified what the importance of the temptations are. You know, what do they mean? Why was he tempted in these ways? Um, but Mark just says he was tempted. So, the main point of the text is that he was tempted. But I'm going to draw something out of each one of these temptations that has something down the line for us in our salvation. So, temptation one. Temptation one is found in verse three. And the devil said to him, if you are the son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, it is written, man should not live by bread alone. And when I read this, I instantly thought of John 6. So my conclusion was that Jesus didn't turn the stone into bread in order to satisfy his hunger. Because he knew that by resisting this temptation, he will become the bread to satisfy ours. And that's significant. He knew our need and he knew that he was the only one that was able to satisfy our need. And this is what allowed him to say no to the serpent. There's a people who I have in mind to redeem. There's a curse that I am willing and I want to reverse. So here, I will not turn the stone into bread because I will become that bread to satisfy the hungry souls of my people. Temptation number two. And Jesus answered him, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. Oh, I lied. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, to you, I will give all this authority and this glory for it has been delivered to me and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will be all yours. So remember that what Jesus accomplishes for us will be imputed to us, will be granted to us, will be given to us through faith. So the reason he resisted the worship of Satan is to say that Jesus didn't... Okay. Jesus worshipped the Father perfectly, perpetually, entirely, and exactly in order that his shed blood would cover all the times we would not. So here, he's slowly reversing the curse. Because of the curse, we became idolaters. We worshiped everything but God. But in this temptation, he proves to be the stronger Adam, to be our representative for our salvation. He showed perfect, exact, and entire obedience. Temptation number three. And Jesus answered him, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only you shall serve. Okay. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, 
He will command the angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands, they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against the stone. And Jesus answered him, it is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. So temptation number three. Jesus didn't actively jump down from the temple recklessly to publicly display God's good pleasure in him as a son. In order, he, he, he resisted that temptation in order that he could passively be raised up obediently on the cross to display God's displeasure in us and God's good pleasure in crushing his son. Um, so, so in order for him to be the head of humanity, he had to pass these tests. In order for him to be the head of humanity, he had to go through these tests as Adam did. Um, to take the place of Adam, to reverse the curse of Adam, to undo what Adam, in fact, did by his disobedience to Adam and to Jesus in the garden. Um, so, because of Jesus, a humanity now stands innocent before God, no longer under God's wrath, but under his great love. A humanity no longer stained with sin, but now clothed and robed in the righteousness of Jesus that he has wrought on our behalf. A humanity no longer strangers, but adopted children of God. Um, so, like I argued it beforehand, this passage is not about ways in which we can fight temptation better, even though that's a good thing to get from the text. Um, the passage is not ultimately about Jesus' example and how to fight temptation. The main point of the passage is, is showing forth the beauty of the ministry of Jesus as the triumphant second Adam, who is our salvation. So it's not something that we should do, it's something that we should receive. And that's what I'm arguing from the main point of this passage. I don't want you to do anything, I just want you to receive the work that Jesus has done on your behalf as the second Adam. Who, who went under the temptation of the serpent, but was triumphant. And was triumphant for you and I, for all who repent and turn to him um, in faith. Um, so Jesus Christ, the second Adam, begins the ministry in Luke 4 with the goal to accomplish the reversal of the curse that started in Genesis 3. Um, but I think it's really significant because in Genesis 3, the curse... It ends in one final curse, I would say. Um, the final curse is Genesis 3. Well, you don't have that, so I'll just read it. Um, the final curse is Genesis 3, and it says, Therefore the Lord sent him out from the Garden of Eden, he, Adam, to work the ground with which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword and turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. The final curse was no longer fellowship with God. The final curse was that we would no longer have access to the tree of life. The final curse is that there's no longer communion with God in the garden in the midst of the place that he created for us, for fellowship. But friends, I tell you today that Jesus, the second Adam, was slain by that very flaming sword that was held by the angel. 
in order to grant us entrance back into the Garden of Eden so we can taste of the fruit of the tree of life one day where we would finally dwell as He is our God and we would be His people forever and ever because our second Adam has triumphantly won and has conquered the old ancient serpent fully and finally forever. He's no longer a problem. He's no longer an issue. Our second Adam rules. Or our second Adam rose from the dead, actually. Our second Adam is ascended. Our second Adam is seated at the right hand of God the Father. And he is doing just fine. So therefore, our salvation is secure. And this Adam can, that, that old Adam, the old curse, the old, the serpent can do nothing, can do nothing to snatch us out of the second Adam's glorious, mighty, victorious, triumphant hand. Um, so, that is the main thrust of the passage. And I hope I have convinced you that the passage is not about us. The passage is about the second Adam who is triumphantly won. Um, so, would you pray with me? Um, Father, we thank you so much that you have sent forth your Son um, to redeem a people for yourself. Um, you have sent forth your Son to be a representative um, for a new humanity and a new people. Um, that His obedience, um, that His righteousness would be granted to us who have faith in Him um, and that He would finally reverse the curse of Adam. All the sickness, all the disease, all the sin, all the destruction, all the bondage, all the decay um, and that through Your Son and through His obedience, justification and life comes to all men. Um, so Father, would we believe that today? But we trust our second Adam, the greater Adam, the triumphant Adam. Um, and may we be stirred to deeper affection and deeper love for him. Um, in the precious name of Christ, I pray. Amen. Amen. Right. <laughs> Something that we're trying to start around campus. We did these things called prayer circles last year, uh, mainly at the Clarice uh, Center. And so what they were were ten, literally 10 minutes in the middle of the day. You get with people in RUF or other friends you have, and you read a psalm, and you pray for one another, and you pray for the campus. Um, so it's just like we're trying to figure out where people are. So I have a little sheet here that says name and then your location on campus around 12 noon, like wherever you are, because we're trying to make this easy for you to like gather with some other people and literally just read a psalm and pray with one another um, and pray for one another, pray for the campus. So, so think about where you are at 12 noon or in that range. And put your, if you're interested in do this, put your name down, and we're going to try to like gather people together. So as we sing the last song, this will go around. Does that make sense? Okay. For Tuesdays, Tuesdays, or or. Yeah.